Hi, my name is Paige, one of the editors and hosts of the Synapse podcast. Today, our guest is Mr. Daryl Davis, a musician, lecturer, activist, and author. Our SN host, Daewon, recently sat down with Mr. Davis to discuss his life experiences, interpersonal relationships, stereotypes, and music. This episode is quite a bit longer than our others, but we hope you'll stick around until the end. We are live. Daryl, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Um, It's really an honor to have you here. It's my pleasure, Dewan. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And back at the Synapse, a bunch of people are excited for this interview because we have about 50 members in the podcast department. As soon as I mentioned your name, the chats just went crazy. So I can't even, I can't wait to like just publish this episode. Cool. All right. So, uh, Daryl, God, I need to get used to calling you Daryl as well. Um, A lot of people are familiar with your work, especially with your work with the KKK members and Mm -hmm. how you actually just personalize their interactions with yourself, et cetera, and get them to change their perspective. And when engaging in dialogue with the members of the KKK, I just want to ask if you've seen any patterns or if you know where most of their perspectives and actions kind of stem from? Is it from hatred, from fear, childhood, or misinformation? Well, all of the above, but, but the root cause is, uh, is ignorance, mm. okay? And uh, I'll give you an example of an incident that happened on my, on my uh, first interview with a uh, clan leader. Right. So uh, I was told to leave this guy alone because he would kill me. And I was told that by, by one of his members. And I said, well, that's the whole reason I need to speak with him. You know, why would he kill me? All he sees is the color of my skin. And he goes crazy and something like that. He goes, man, he just does not like black people. This is a guy who, who used to be in the Klan and, and quit uh, this guy's group. So he was telling me this. And I said, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to talk to him. I, I need to interview him. So anyway, um, he gave me the, uh, the Klan leader's um, you know, phone number and address and stuff. And, you know, asked me to promise, you know, that I would not give him the source of where I got his information. I said, okay. So I had my secretary call the guy and I I told her not to tell him that I was black. Just tell him, you know, that she works for somebody who's uh, writing a book on the Klan. Would he consent to sitting down and having an interview? So she said, okay. So she called him and he agreed to it and uh, didn't ask what color I was. So we set it up for a motel room and when he arrived, he came with an armed bodyguard and the bodyguard was wearing like a military camouflage and the Ku Klux Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross, a patch on his chest. And over here were the initials KKK. And then on his hip was a semi-automatic uh, handgun in a holster. So when they entered the room that, and saw me, they freaked out because you know they were expecting a white guy. <laughs> so I'm not looking at them and I can read their faces and they're like wondering, you know, did the desk clerk give us the wrong room number or is this an ambush? You know, so I saw the apprehension and I displayed my hands so they could see I had nothing in my hands. And I walked forward and I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. The guy's name was Roger Kelly. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. My name is Daryl Davis. And he shook my hand and the bodyguard shook my hand. So everything was cool. You know, they were a little freaked out. I said, come on in, come on in, please have a seat. 
So Mr. Kelly sat down and the bodyguard stood at attention to him. And so once we got started with the interview, uh, I had a little black bag beside my chair leg in, in which I had a cassette recorder, which I put on the table and I asked him, you know, was it okay if I record? He said, yes. And I had some blank cassettes and I had a copy of the Bible in the bag uh, because the Klan claims to be a Christian organization. And they say that the Bible preaches a racial separation. Now, I've never seen that. So I, you know, I want him to show me yeah. where, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're talking and stuff. And um, every time uh, he was, you know, my cassette would run out of tape, I'd reach down, get a fresh cassette and change it. Or he would say, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, blah, blah, blah. I'd reach down and get the Bible. And every time I reached down, the bodyguard reached up to his gun. And, right. you know, I mean, I, I got used to that. And I, I was cool with that because I understood, you know, that's his job. He's a bodyguard. And he, he doesn't know me. I'm the enemy as far as he's concerned. And he has no idea what's in my bag. So he's doing his job. And so, you know, I was okay with that. Um, but then, you know, after a little while, he realized there was nothing in my bag. And, he, and the bodyguard did not move. You know, I went in and out of the bag. The bodyguard didn't care. But just over an hour or so into this interview, Mr. Kelly and I, you know, we're talking. And all of a sudden, there was a very quick, short noise. I got, Shh. That was all there was to it. And, you know, it, it freaked me out because I didn't make it. So I knew that if I didn't make it, he had to have made it, you know, because, you know, noises just don't happen on their, you know, by themselves. Right. So it has some, something had to trigger it. And there was no animal in the room. And my secretary is sitting right here. She didn't make it. So, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you know, this guy has done something and, you know, I, I, something's getting ready to happen. So, I, you know, I went into survival mode. Because uh, I thought, you know, the guy was going you know, to get ready to go off. And I could hear the voice of that other Klansman saying, Daryl, don't fool with him. He'll kill you. So I jumped up out of my chair and I hit the table because I was going to come across the table and attack him right. and attack the bodyguard uh, just to protect myself. Because, you know, I did not have a weapon. My mm -hmm. secretary did not have a weapon. It's my job to protect me and to protect my secretary, just like it's the bodyguard's job to protect um, himself and, and, you know, the, the clan leader. Right. So when I came up, hit the table, I'm looking right at Mr. Kelly's face into his eyes. And my eyes were questioning him. I didn't say anything, but my eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? <laughs> and his eyes were questioning mine. He didn't say anything either. And I, I, I could read his, his eyes, his facial expression. And what he was saying to me through body language was, what did you just do? And the bodyguard had his hand on his gun now, he didn't pull it out, but he had his hand on, on the handle of the gun. And he was like looking back and forth between both of us, like what did either one of you all just do? Well, my secretary, Mary, she was sitting on top of the dresser because there were no more chairs. And she realized what had happened. Uh, we had gotten, she and I had gotten soda pop out of the machine down the hall and put it in the ice bucket, filled it with ice to get it cold to offer you know, a beverage. And uh, the ice had begun melting. And the cans of soda were like falling down the ice. So yeah, shh, shh, that was it. And she began explaining it to us and it happened again. And we all began laughing. We all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. But this was a teaching moment. I won't say it was a learning moment because the learning would come later after you process it. Right. But it was a teaching moment. 
And in, in that one moment, understand this, he's the head of the KKK. I'm a black guy, I'm his enemy, he's, he, you know, he's my enemy. But yet we're sitting in this same uh, motel room. Ideologically, we're that far apart from each other, right? But in that moment, we all began laughing together at how ridiculous and how ignorant we each had been because somebody could have gotten shot over a piece of ice. How crazy is that? You know, or, uh, or you know, if, 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 if I got to them first, I would have hurt them before, before they pulled the gun. So, you know, it's crazy. That's, that's what ignorance does. So the lesson taught, like I said, it wasn't learned right there, but it was taught. The lesson taught is that um, all because some foreign entity of which we were ignorant, we were ignorant of the bucket of ice and cans of soda, uh, because this foreign entity entered into our little comfort zone and we were ignorant as to what it was, it entered into our comfort zone by, by way of the noise that it made. Um, we became fearful of each other. We blamed each other for making this noise. So the lesson taught is ignorance breeds fear. So if we do not check that fear and keep it intact, that fear or address it, you know, minimize it, that fear will escalate and breed hatred. We fear the things that we, of which we are ignorant, things that we don't understand, we fear them. If we don't check the fear, the fear will escalate and breed hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. And if we don't keep the hatred in check, that hatred will escalate and breed destruction. We wanna destroy the things that we hate because they frighten us. But guess what? At the end of the day, they may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. So we saw all of that almost come to completion had, uh, had the bodyguard drawn his weapon and shot somebody or had I jumped across the table and hurt one of them. Fortunately, it stopped just short of that because right. Mary you know, discovered what the, what the uh, source was. Right. Well, you know, uh, you saw and so did, so did the whole world see what I'm talking about unfold to completion three years ago uh, on August 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia. Ah, you remember that rally down there? Right, right, yeah. I do. Okay, so on August 12th in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, 2017, there was a lot of ignorance that, that day down there. Right. There was a lot of fear that day in Charlottesville. Right. There was a lot of hatred in Charlottesville. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his car and tried to murder as many, as many counter protesters as he could by driving full force into the crowd. Uh, he succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. Right. So ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, hatred breeds destruction. Now, the problem that, you know, that we're faced with is how to address it. Uh, in my opinion, we've been addressing it the wrong way for so long. Normally, you know, how we address this works in a corporate structure or a departmental structure, right. like say a police department or a corporation. You take your cue from the top, right? right? You know, if the management at the top is tight, everybody down below will be tight. If the management is loose and they're goofing off or they're not paying attention, 
nobody down below is going to be paying attention. Okay. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they follow right. whatever happens up, upstairs, exactly. right? Yeah. It trickles down. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, you know, so whenever you have a problem in your company with your employees and stuff, don't look at the employees, look at the management at the top, you know, or, you know, what, what are they doing that, that are allowing the employees to, to, to mess up. So it's called trickle down. Well, that works in that kind of structure. But with racism, uh, we don't start at the top. The top is a, is a destruction. We spend too much time worrying about the destruction. Don't worry about that. You know, once something is destroyed, it's gone. It's not coming back. All right, for example, George Floyd. All right, George Floyd has been destroyed. Very unfortunate. He will never come back. All right, that's done. The next level down is hatred. That too is also a symptom. Forget the hatred. Don't, don't bother addressing that. You're wasting your time. Uh, the next level down is the fear. Again, that is a symptom. Forget about the fear. The next level down is ignorance. That is the foundation. That's where we should start, at the bottom. Not at the top, okay? This is not corporate, this is racism. Right. So start at the bottom. The foundation is, is ignorance. If we cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear because we only fear what we don't understand, that of which we're ignorant. So if we cure the ignorance, there's nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, then there's nothing to hate because we hate the things of which we were afraid. So if there's nothing to hate, then there's nothing to destroy because we get angry when we hate and we end up destroying stuff. Right. So cure the ignorance. And the good thing is there is a cure for ignorance. Oh. And that cure is called education. Education and, uh, and exposure. This is what cures ignorance. So all the energy that we spend wasting our time on the destruction, yes, it's sad something got destroyed, especially human life. You know, buildings can be replaced and things like that. Human life cannot, mm -hmm. all right? But we're wasting our time addressing that, the, uh, the hatred and the fear. Let's address the ignorance and then all those other things, those symptomatic things will not happen, all right? So education and exposure are the keys. Now, uh, you, have, you have two kinds, basically two kinds of people. Uh, well, you have all kinds of people, but I'm gonna give you two, 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 uh, two words, two, two adjectives. You have people who are ignorant and you have people who are stupid. And some people wanna tell you that ignorance and stupidity are synonymous. No, they're not. Uh, in my definition, an ignorant person is someone who makes the wrong decision or a bad choice because he or she does not have the facts, who does not have the proper information. Right. If you give that person the facts, the proper information, then you have alleviated their ignorance and they can make a good choice or a correct decision, right? A stupid person is someone who has the facts. They have the right information and they still make the wrong decision. So let's say, for example, I have a room and I paint all the walls in the room. The walls are wet, but I don't put up any signs that say wet paint, stay off the walls. Anybody who walks into that room is ignorant to the fact that these walls are wet. And because they don't know, they might go and lean up against the wall. 
and now they have paint on their clothes because they didn't know. So I can fix that ignorance by after I paint the walls, I put signs around that say, stay off the walls, wet paint, etc. And I can stand in the doorway and I can tell each person coming into that room, hey, gather around the center of the room, lay up, stay away from the walls. I just painted them you know, 10 minutes ago, they're still wet. So now everybody has the facts. Everybody has the proper information to make the right decision. I have alleviated the ignorance, but still one person, you know, goes and leans up against the wall. And now he wants to know why is there paint on, on his right. shirt? Right. It's because he's stupid, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. It's... Okay, exactly. I gave him the facts <laughs> and what did he do? Nothing. Right. Okay, so ignorance can be cured with education. Stupidity cannot. And um, so, we, you know, we live in a world of ignorant and stupid people. All of us are ignorant to some degree about something, right, you know, right. um, I, mean, I don't know how to fix cars. So when my car, you know, breaks down, I, I have to go to a mechanic, right? right, right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, I can learn, I can go to mechanic school and learn how to change spark plugs and all that stuff. But, um, you know, that's not what I want to do. So I take it to, to, a, uh, to a mechanic, right. you know, that's my ignorance. Um, so that's what we need to address. And that will go a long ways. We spend way too much time in this country talking about the other person or talking at the other person or talking past the other person. Why don't we just spend just a little bit of time talking with the other person? And that will go a long ways to exposing that other person to us. They don't have to agree with us. We don't have to agree with them, but at least they get to know us, they no longer fear us. So, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't agree with you, Daywan. Yeah. But at least um, I, I, I know you now, so I'm not going to yeah. beat you up or shoot you or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> you know, you know what I I'm saying? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if we agree, it's all the better, right? Yeah. But but you know, we're not going to know where where we can agree or where we have to respectfully disagree if we don't talk to each other. Right. And it's no skin off our back to sit down and have a conversation. Um, you know, I, I traveled a lot as a kid right. uh, because my parents were American embassy, you know, you, you know, foreign service. So between traveling with my folks as a child and now I'm a, a professional musician as an adult, I play around the world, um, I travel. So when you combine those two sets of travels together, uh, I've been now in a total of uh, 57 different countries on six continents. Wow. And so, yeah. So starting as a kid, you know, I've been exposed to a multitude of uh, people, different colors, different um, ethnicities, different cultures, different religions, different languages, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I come home and, and I think about it, I come to one conclusion, no matter how far I've gone from the United States, whether it's right next door to Canada or Mexico or halfway around the world to some other country, no matter how different somebody looks you know, than me or how different their culture may be or their religion or whatever, I conclude one thing. We all are human beings. And as human beings, we all, all of us, we all want basically the same uh, four or five things. We wanna be loved. We wanna be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we want the same things 
for our family as anybody else wants for their family. So if we can understand that and practice that wherever we go, no matter what society, what group, what culture we interact with, we can, we can make progress because they want those same things. Yes, their culture may be different. Yes, their language, their religion, their look may be different, but they still want those things. And if we can respect that and communicate at that level, we, we, can, we can accomplish a lot. Yeah, I think that was like a great reflection on how like both sides could be ignorant as well. And we do sure. have ignorance on each side. And I wanted to ask you something, if there's like an increase in ignorance and stupidity, as we call it, right? Um, if there's been an increase in recent times, and if it's harder to have these dialogues with people, especially who you disagree with. Uh, I won't say that there's really been an increase in it. It's always been around. But it's uh, it's been it's been stirred up. Mm. The the closet the, the closet door has been opened where we kept it. Right. Uh, the, the carpet that that it's been hiding under has yeah. been pulled back. Right. Okay. You know, a lot of people want to say, you know, yeah, there's more racism since uh, Trump got in office. You know, yeah. or whatever. No, Trump did not invent racism. I'm not a supporter of Trump, but he right. did not invent racism. Uh, but he certainly fueled it and still continues to fuel it. But uh, it's always been there. And, and now, you know, when you have the, the leader of the country more or less endorsing uh, racist behavior, right. then of course all the racists think, you know, they have, you know, free reign. They can go out and do whatever they want to do now. Right. So, so we're seeing it. And also more people have cell phone cameras today mm -hmm. than, you know, we did before the cell phone, right? right. Or not before the cell phone, but because the first cell phones didn't have a camera on them. But uh, you know, there's there's more access to to videoing somebody, so it's not that uh, that you know there's more more of that stuff going on so much as it is that is, is more of it being captured, right? You know, on camera. So now there's like an increase in documentation overall yes. with how like current events, etc. Okay. Yes. Yeah, because you know it's like um, you know at the end of the year, wh wh where do you live now? I what live city? in California, Cerritos. Okay, so at the end of the year, you know, your, your local police department puts out a report, uh, you know, how many murders there were there, how, how many rapes there were, how many, you know, burglaries, et cetera, and to, to compare, you know, the stats with this year than 2019 or whatever. Now, is a crime going down? Is it going up? Whatever. Uh, you know, you can, you can bet on the number of, um, of rapes. You know, if, if there were 17 rapes, where you live uh, reported this year in 2020, right. you, you can be sure there were more. There were only 17 reported. Reported. Yeah, because some women don't report it right. uh, because they're afraid or they're embarrassed or they don't want to go to court and have to live through it again right. and be put on the stand and be accused of, of enticing the person or whatever. You know, they get re-victimized. Right. Uh, so they, they just don't report it. They just move on with their lives. Um, so you know, you're faced with that kind of thing too. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I've actually noticed that as well. It's just like there's more cameras going around, there's more eyewitnesses, et cetera. And yes. it's easily more accessible on the internet now. So I think yes. that has a big drive. But I want to ask you if this drive for you to have dialogues, to understand, 
And I know you mentioned in one interview as well, your eccentric um, personality, et cetera, right? Where do you think this courage, this will to understand kind of stems from? You know, I don't, for me, I don't really even call it courage. I call it curiosity for me. Curiosity. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, um, <clears throat> because of my background, all my travel, all that kind of stuff. Now, because I've traveled extensively, that does not make me a better person than anybody else. But it gives me a broader perspective than people who have traveled less. Because I've seen more. Okay, it doesn't make me better. It doesn't make me a better human being than than somebody else. But it it makes me have a a broader perspective. Um, So that's where I think what you call courage and what I call curiosity, that's where it comes from. Uh, because I've been exposed to so many different cultures uh, as a child, when I see the KKK or some white supremacists, whether they're neo-Nazis or alt-right or whatever the, you know their problem is, I just view them as another culture. And, I, and all my life, I've just seen so many different cultures. Wow. So I deal with them on that level. And um, I give them the respect to let them be heard. Now, understand something. I do not respect what they say. I simply respect their right to say it. Okay, now I'm gonna give you an example of how this works. Right. Oh, another thing, you know, when, when you see my name in the media, right. you know, you Google it or whatever, it'll say, you know, all the different articles, uh, black musician converts X number of, of KKK members. Right. That's not true. I did not convert anybody. I didn't even convert a one. I am the impetus though. I am the impetus for over 200 people to get out of that ideology, but they convert themselves. I just give them the reason to think about things and then they come to that conclusion. Some will, um, a lot of them will come to the conclusion, but there'll be those who will never change. They will go to their grave being hateful and violent and racist. But I try to give people information that they can process themselves and then they can think, hey, you know what? I've been doing things the wrong way. I need to, I need to go this way. And they change. So um, I'll say this. If I had not had all that travel experience and been exposed to different people, would I be doing this today? Probably not. I'd probably be you know, staying as far away from those people as I could. All right. All right. Uh, because, you know, I'd be afraid of them. Um, but because I've seen so many different things, you know, they don't they don't bother me. I mean, they bother me in the fact that, that they're racist. I don't like that. Right. But they don't bother me in terms of being afraid. I'm not right. afraid of them. Now, I'll give you an example of, of how communication works. Somebody who joins the Klan, that, you know, that means they have a strong commitment towards not liking somebody else. Right. You know, uh, whether they're Jewish, they're gay, they're Asian, they're Hispanic, they're black, they're Muslim, whatever it is they're not, they don't like. They only like their own kind, right? Okay, so they're so committed to that that they go and join a group that practices that and they even have a uniform that practices that, <laughs> you know, a robe and a hood, right? <laughs> I mean, that's serious. Man. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, pretty serious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that, you know, that shows commitment, right? right? Okay. So now um, this guy, 
he's a clan leader, Roger Kelly. I'm going to interview him. Right. And he, he doesn't know that I'm black. So uh, my secretary sets up the meeting. I told her, don't tell him that I'm black unless he asks. She says, okay. So she's white. And so she calls him. He agrees to do the interview. So now I know that he's thinking he's going to be meeting with a white guy. Yeah. Because, you know, there aren't, there are, at the time, you know, there were, there were no black people interviewing Klan people. You know, I, w- I was the first one to do it. <laughs> so anyway, um, when he shows up and he sees me, he's freaked. You know, automatically his wall goes right up. You know, he, he gets ready to go on the attack because I am the enemy in his eyes, right? So when we sit down to talk, um, he's telling me, that black people are um, are prone to crime, mm. that 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 uh, that there are more black criminals than white criminals, and and the evidence for that is well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is look in the prisons. There are more uh, black people in prison than white people. Now, what he is saying is true. That is true. There are more blacks in prison than white people, but it is a half truth, because he is not considering the fact that our judicial system in this country is not balanced, all right? It's imbalanced. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, there are plenty of poor Black people and poor white people, for that matter, in prison because they could not afford uh, legal, uh, you know, good, adequate legal representation. Right. So they had to take a plea bargain to something, you know, they didn't even do, and now they're sitting in prison. So he tells me, you know, Blacks are more prone to crime than white people. I'm just sitting, you know, listening to him. And then he goes on to tell me that, uh, that black people are inherently lazy. We do not want to work. Uh, we prefer to scam the, uh, the government welfare system. And we're always looking for free handouts, free programs. Um, so I'm, I'm just sitting back listening. And, and then he tells me that black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the smaller the brain, the less room oh, for, for intelligence. Oh, the larger wait. the brain, the more capacity. I don't okay? think that's how it yeah. works. Well, yeah, you know, so I mean, that's what he believes. Right. So he says this is evidenced by the fact that uh, Black students consistently, year after year, uh, score lower than white kids on the SATs. Now, th- again, that is true. true. Black kids do score lower. Than, uh, than, than people, um, the white kids on the SATs. But he is not looking at the reason behind it. Opportunities. Opportunities, okay? Educational opportunity. Where do most black kids go to school? In the inner city. Where do most white kids go to school? Private. In the suburbs, all right? Which, which uh, locale has the better education? The suburbs. Suburbs. Okay, so... <laughs> I can tell you this right now. Black kids who go to school in the suburbs score just as high, if not higher, than some white kids. Mm-hmm. And white kids who go to school in the inner city score low. It's not because they're stupid, you know, or, or, or they have a small brain or something. It's because of the, of the inequity in the, uh, in the educational system that, you know, it, it's not equal. So that's, that's what needs to be addressed. Not the brain size, but the quality of education. But see, he sees the result. You know, black kids score here, white kids score here, Asian kids score there, all that kind of stuff. So he sees that 
and says, okay, well, black kids are, are, are inferior to whites. You know, they're, they're not intellectually capable and all that kind of, you know, that, that's his, that's his, that's his uh, perspective because that's what he sees in the, in the charts. And that's what it reflects, but it does not tell you the reason why, all right? So he makes up his own reason because it fits his narrative. So I'm listening to him say all this stuff. Now, most people who look like me, if they were to, to be sitting down, listening to this, they would start pushing back within about 45 seconds. Right. I did not push back. I just sat there and listened to him. I let him get it all out. Um, was what he was saying to me, was it offensive? Yes, of course it was offensive. Was I offended by it? Absolutely not. Why was I not offended by it? Because it wasn't true. It did not apply to me. Why should I be offended by a lie? This man doesn't know me. He only met me 10 minutes ago when he walked in the room, right? All he sees is this, the color of my skin. And now he's gonna make an assessment that I'm a criminal, I'm lazy, and I'm unintelligent. So why should I be offended by something he says when he doesn't even know me? Uh, now, if my mom or dad said, Daryl, you know, I, I think you're prone to crime. I think you're lazy, don't want to work. And I think, I think you're unintelligent. You're dumb. Well, if my parents told me that, maybe I would consider that. You know, they brought me into this world. They raised me. But not somebody who, who I just met 10 minutes ago. No. Forget it. <laughs> so, so, so we have to, we have to keep our emotions back. Right. Don't put our emotions in front of us because they will, they will be an obstacle. So we can't go forward. We're holding ourselves back. Mm -hmm. All right. So I don't find what he said to be offensive because yes, it is offensive, but, but I don't, I'm not offended because it doesn't apply to me. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, he doesn't know that. So now because I'm allowing him you know, I, I said those five things. They want to be loved. They want to be heard. They want to be respected. They want to be treated fairly. And they want the same thing for their family as we want for our family. I'm respecting him to, to let him speak. I'm allowing him to be heard. So guess what that's doing? That's bringing that wall down. Because he's, he's never gone that far with somebody that he doesn't like. And that person has not pushed back. So now I threw him off his game. The wall is coming down. And I, I just let him spew out all this nonsense, right? And then the wall gets down. And then after he has exhausted himself with all his attacks on me, he and I listen to him, he feels compelled to reciprocate. Now he's gonna listen to me because he's curious. How can I just sit there and let him insult me like that? And I don't attack like, like, like most people, you know, push back. So now his wall is down, he feels safe. He got it all out. So now it's my turn. Now, I could attack him verbally, and I would be well within my right. I could say, no, you know what? You are a criminal. You're the one going around bombing black churches and, 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 and killing black people and hanging them from the, uh, from the trees and all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, I, I, I could attack him that way, and I would be well within my rights, because that is true. But instead of, but what would happen if I did that, if I went on the offense? That wall would go, yeah that wall would go back up, right? I want the wall to stay down because I want him to hear what I have to say. I want to be able to plant a seed on the other side of his wall into his yard, right? If the wall is up, my seed is gonna hit the wall and fall back on my side. I want the wall down so the seed goes across. So rather than go on the offense, 
I go on the defense. I said, you know, listen, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but let me just tell you a little bit about me. Number one, uh, I don't have a criminal record. N nobody in my family has a criminal record. Number two, I've never been on welfare. Nobody in my family's ever been on welfare. And number three, as far as brain size goes, I've never measured my brain, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's brain. And in terms of the SATs, my SAT scores were high enough to get me into college. I have a college degree. My mother, I have a bachelor's degree. My mother and father both had master's degrees. My father was working on his PhD. Now, I'm saying all that knowing that this man probably barely made it out of high school. I know that I have more intelligence in my little fingernail than he and his whole clan put together. <laughs> but I'm not gonna throw that in his face because if I did, the wall would go back up, right? Yeah. So I wanna keep the wall down. I'm not gonna attack him. I'm just gonna protect myself and tell him you know, about me. I, you know, I went to college, I have a college degree. My SAT scores were fine. I've never been on welfare. I'm, I'm not a criminal, I'm not in prison. You know, all this kind of stuff. So now he, he heard that. He only hears when the wall is down. When the wall is up, nobody hears. When the wall is up, everybody's like this, okay? <laughs> so, so I can tell you what happens because I've been doing this for 36 years. And, and I ask people when they, when they quit the Klan and they renounce all that kind of stuff, what happened? This is what I get back. They go home after these conversations and stuff. And it doesn't happen overnight, it happens over time. They think, you know, gee, I just had a three hour conversation with a black guy and we didn't fight. You know, how can that be? Because most times, you know, they fight within 45 seconds. You know, you start telling somebody he's a criminal and he's lazy and he's born with a small brain, somebody's yeah. gonna wanna knock your teeth out. Right? Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> Understandable, I mean. Exactly, right. So that, that's what he's accustomed to. Right. And so I threw him off his game when I didn't respond that way, right? right? I didn't get, get my emotions in front of me. So anyway, he's thinking at home, man, you know, this is strange. Uh, I had a conversation with a black guy for three hours and he didn't, you know, you know we, we didn't fight. And you know, you know, what he said about such and such, it, it makes sense, but he's black. But what he said was true, but he's black. So they're having this cognitive dissonance. They know what I said was true either because they know it or they researched it and found out I was telling the truth, but they don't want to accept it because I'm black. So it's a cognitive dissonance, right? And so he, it, that, that becomes a dilemma for him. You know, how can I, you know, I know this is true, but I don't want to believe it because um, this guy, you know, the guy is black. It's, it's, like, it's like our president right now, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to believe um, that he got coronavirus because he didn't wear his mask, you know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what a mess! <laughs> so, you know, that that's his cognitive dissonance. You know, right. had he worn his mask, had he had his staff wear his wear their mask, he might not be in Walter Reed Hospital right now. Right, that's a fact. Okay, right. but he's having a cognitive dissonance because he doesn't want to admit. You know, that was the problem all along. Okay, so these Klan people, these white supremacists, they're having that cognitive dissonance. You know, do I disregard uh, the color of his skin 
and, and believe the truth because it is the truth and change my ideology and go this way instead of that way? Or do I consider that it's coming from a black guy and, and I know it's not, and, I, and I, I, I'm gonna continue living a lie. So that, that, that's a dilemma. So over time, a lot of them come to the conclusion, I'm living a lie, I need, I need to turn myself around and live the truth. Right. And that's how I end up with their robes and hoods and end up with some wow. good friends. But like I said, some of them will never change. That's the difference between ignorance and stupidity. We can change ignorance, we cannot change stupidity. Right? They have to change that themselves. <laughs> you know, and I, I never expected these people to, um, to uh, you know, when I, when I first got into it, I never expected them to change. And I wasn't, I wasn't trying to change them. Mm. All I wanted to know was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? All you see is the color of my skin and you make all these crazy judgments about me. Why? Um, but because as a kid, I'm sure you heard the same expression I heard when I was a kid, that a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. Okay, so I heard those things too. So I was I was under the belief that a uh, that a Klansman uh, would not change his robe and hood. You know, you are what you are. Mm -hmm. But I was mistaken. I was wrong. Yes, a a leopard does not change his spots. A tiger does not change his stripes, and that's because they can't, because they were born with those spots. They were born with those stripes. But guess what? A Klansman was not born with his robe and hood. Racism is learned. learned. It's learned. Okay, you're not born as a racist. So that robe and hood, you acquire it. You acquire it when you learn racism. All right. So what can be learned can also be unlearned. Hmm. We cannot unstripe a tiger un or unspot the leopard. It's born that way. Hmm. But a racist is not born that way. That's learned. So I was mistaken in thinking that, you know, those people, you know, would never change. Right. So now I know. Yeah. Like hatred is also learned as well. It, precisely. Like exactly. Right. Exactly. And I'll tell you something. Um, you know, I give anywhere between 60 and 80 lectures a year. Uh, not, not right. Yeah. Not, not right now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Not, not right now during lockdown. But, right. um, you know, in general. And uh, a lot of them are like at colleges and universities, uh, corporations, police departments, churches, synagogues, whatever. But a lot of them colleges and universities. And I'll tell you something, two to three out of every 10 that I give, this will happen. I'll do the lecture and then I'll do a Q&A. And even after the Q&A, some of the students will come up to the podium to ask one last question while I'm packing up or they want to touch one of them. I bring some robes and hoods with me, you know, and they want to see those or whatever. Right. So two or three out of, out of every 10 times, there'll be one student standing way over there in the distance. And they're not doing anything, just kind of like milling around, you know, by themselves. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of strange. You know, they're not leaving, but they're not over here with the other students. And then I've come to learn what's going to happen because it happens time and time again. Once the crowd goes away and I'm by myself, he or she will walk over to me. And they'll like look around, make sure nobody else is you know, within earshot. And they'll say, oh, Mr. Davis, you know, I, I enjoyed your lecture. And then they'll look around again and they'll say, but you know, my mother is in the Klan or my father is a neo-Nazi, you know? And you know, cause they don't want anybody else to hear that. 
and and then they say, you know, you know, I I was raised that way, you know, that that's what I believed in, and now I'm here at University of whatever, um, and I'm I'm dating um, my 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 boyfriend's Jewish, or my girlfriend is black, or or you know, um, my best friend is gay, you know, or whatever, and I can't I can't take you know that person home with me, because my parents will kill me, you know, they'll disown me. Uh, and I don't want to tell my friend because, you know, they'll drop me. Right. So, you know, they got this secret that is burning on their chest, calling, you know, causing an ulcer, you know, and, um, you know, here's what happens. You know, they come from a neighborhood where everybody's pretty much the same, you know, like in an all white neighborhood or all homogenous. whatever neighborhood. Homogenous, exactly. They go to the same school, they read the same books, they swim in the same swimming pool, shop in the same, <laughs> you know, grocery store. They cheer the same sports team. They probably vote for the same politician, whatever, you're right? And so now, you know, they graduate from high school and they come away to college, you know, University of, name the state, whatever, right? And now they're here. The neighborhood did not come with them. And here at the college, there are neighborhoods there from all over the country and maybe even all over the world. And now they're getting exposed to things that were not in their neighborhood. And they're learning that Jewish people don't have horns and, and black people don't have tails. And, you know, um, you know, gay people are okay. Muslim people are okay. Uh, black people, Asian people, Hispanic people, all the people who, who, who did not live in their neighborhood, you know, they're okay. And so how do they go back home and tell their parents all this when their parents taught them just the opposite? Now, see, their, their parents wanted them to get an education but they didn't want them to get that education. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, <it's> so, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and so now, you know, they go back to the neighborhood and, and, and they've had all this education and all this exposure. And they go back to the neighborhood and their friends that, you know, they used to have in high school, they realize how small their brains were. <laughs> Like how small their worldview was, because like Precisely. literally, it, it was limited to just like fifty acres when right. the whole world is just millions. Exactly, because I mean, like, like you know, you know, you you went to high school, yeah. and and you know, you know, so in high school, at your high school, people are mostly from your neighborhood or the next neighborhood over or whatever. Right. But when you go to college, people are there from all over the world, all over the country. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a whole, like you said, the acreage right. just expands. You know, it's a whole different right. universe it's really mind-boggling to just see a community even outside but especially if you see a multitude of them it really does affect you and i just want to ask like recently i know that there's been a bit of backlash against your work um, mm -hmm. even from the black lives matter movement etc mm -hmm. and they were actually telling me that they were afraid of starting dialogue and they didn't want to that they were them uh, for example, the KKK and the, uh, we were us, that we're mm -hmm. different from them, etc. Us and versus them. Us versus them, exactly. And I just want to say, I know that breeds ignorance, etc. as well. And it's exactly just staying in that one community, that kind of mindset is also bad as well. And I want to ask you if this, again, has been a trend and if this is something like, how do we fight against this? Okay, so... Yes, I, I do get uh, some backlash. Um, now, I, I'll say this. Let, let, let's, let's talk about Black Lives Matter for a second. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, black, and you called it right. Uh, you said two things that are correct. You said fear. Right. Um, you know, the, you know, the, you know, they don't want to start a dialogue with them. They're, you know, they're fear of starting a dialogue with them. Well, where, where, where does that fear come from? It comes from that ignorance. You know, you, ha you have to know somebody, understand them. You don't have to accept what they stand for, right. but understand them. And then you talk with them and you find out they're afraid of you too. You're afraid of them and they're afraid of you. So, you know, why, why is the KKK around? Because they're afraid of black people. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's a fear. Right. So, so all the fear is gonna do is escalate into hatred until you get to know one another and say, hey, you know what? You know, that, that black guy wasn't so bad. That white guy wasn't so bad. You know, we have to get to know each other. Right. The, the, the ignorance is not knowing. The cure for ignorance is to know, right? So fear is correct. It goes right back to what I was saying. Now, uh, in terms of Black Lives Matter, you called it a movement. That's right. It is a movement. Um, a lot of people refer to it as, you know, you know, the organization Black Lives Matter. No, it's not an oh, organization. It's not an organization. No, and not at all. A lot of people mistakenly say that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the founders who, who created Black Lives Matter, uh, they, they had a very good idea. It was a very good idea to do what they did. And they modeled their idea uh, in terms of what they wanted to do was put the national spotlight on the plight of Black men who, for lack of a better term, were being murdered by white police officers um, unjustifiably. Uh, and these black men got to go to their grave, whereby white men in the same situation, whether they were innocent or guilty, they were either going home or they were going to jail. And some got to go to jail by way of Burger King. You know that, right, Dylan Roof? You know, he went to Burger King, right? Oh, I'm not familiar with that story. Okay, you, you know who Dylan Roof is, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't know who he is. Okay, Dylan Roof is that young white supremacist who right. walked inside the black church in Charleston, South Carolina and murdered nine people studying the Bible. Oh. See, here's what happened, you know, he, he was, he's a white supremacist. He, uh, he walks, he's totally armed, all kinds of multiple oh, weapons. Right. And, and he, all kinds of ammunition. He walks into a black church. These, these black people are having Bible study. Right. And he, and he murders nine of them in cold blood and walks out. So then when he gets arrested, the cops get him. He tells the uh, police while, while he's in handcuffs in the back seat that he's hungry. So instead of taking him to jail, the police took him to Burger King and bought him a hamburger and then took him to jail and processed him. Okay, so so here's here's what we see from from a black perspective. Okay, uh, you remember Eric Garner? He was the oh, original. Yeah. Yeah. I can't breathe guy. He was selling right. loose cigarettes on the sidewalk up in Staten Island, right? Right, right. I remember. That. Okay, yeah. So you got you got somebody like Eric Garner. Was Eric Garner breaking the law? Yes, he was breaking the law. You have to have a uh, a license to sell tobacco and alcohol. He was selling loose tobacco, cigarettes, okay, without a license. And so he, he should have been arrested or given a ticket or whatever. Instead, they jumped on him, slammed him down to the ground, right, pounced on him and choked him to death on live video camera. And he said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And he just kept on choking until his life went out. Now, 
Uh, same thing with George Floyd. George Floyd was accused of what? Of, of uh, passing a, a counterfeit $20 bill. Now, we don't know. We don't know if George Floyd knew that he had a fake $20 bill, all right? He hands the uh, store clerk a $20 bill. Right. Now, it's the store clerk's job to recognize counterfeit money, okay? Because, you know, you're dealing with money all day long. Yeah. You, know, you, you, know, you, you need to know what's real and what's fake. So you're trained what to look for. So the clerk thinks that this is a fake $20 bill. He does the right thing. He calls the police. Somebody is, is handing me some fake money. And so he calls the police, right? Now, does George Floyd know that he is giving this clerk a, a fake $20 bill? We don't know that. We don't know because, that. Okay, because I'll tell you what. In my wallet right now, I have some $20 bills. I have a, I have a couple $100 bills, right. right? So if I go to the store and I buy $15 worth of stuff and I pay for it with a $100 bill, I'm going to get some 20s back, right? And then when I go to the store a couple of days from now, I don't know if any of those 20s are fake or not. I just took them because that's the right chain to this. Yeah. That's what to give me. That George Floyd might have had a $100 bill a couple of days prior to the incident. And he, you know, he bought whatever he bought in some 7-Eleven or whatever. And the clerk gave him, you know, several 20s back, you know, in change. And then a few days later, he goes to the store wherever he was. And he's buying something else and he gives him a $20 bill. He may or may not have known that that $20 bill was fake. All right. That would have been determined where? In court. Okay. Um, determine did he know, did he intentionally try to cash a fake $20 bill? Or or was he unaware? It may have come, it may have been some change from some of the store. That would have been determined by a judge or by a jury if he was innocent or guilty, not by the cop who put his knee on his neck, okay? So we will never know what George Floyd knew. What, was he a counterfeiter? Did he, did he make that $20 bill? Did he have something at home that he could make money with? We don't know, okay? So uh, anyway, the cop uh, determined that this guy, you know, this guy is guilty, I'm gonna kill him right there on the street. All right, so that's what happened. Now, Eric Garner with the loose cigarettes and um, George Floyd with the, uh, with the $20 bill, both of these crimes were nonviolent. You're not, you're, not, you're not hurting anybody by selling cigarettes on the street. You're not hurting anybody by passing $20 bills, fake or real, but you are hurting somebody when you pull out a gun and shoot them in the church. That is a violent crime. You know, run, you know running a red light is not, is not a violent crime. It's a crime. And, and you get a ticket for it. You know, if you're drunk driving, that's also a crime. It's not a violent crime unless you crash. Right. You know, okay. So George Floyd and Eric Garner were committing crimes, allegedly. But uh, they were nonviolent crimes. And they got murdered. They got murdered. They got choked to death. Where Dylan Roof did commit a violent crime. And he got to go to Burger King. Burger King. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's what we see as black people. That's the inequity that we see with the police. So that's one of the reasons why you see Black Lives Matter. Those kind of things have been going on. You know, George Floyd was not the first. Michael, I mean, uh, Eric Garner was not the first. So uh, Black Lives Matter was, uh, was created in the wake of the uh, Trayvon Martin uh, murder and uh, done in Stanford, Florida.
anyway, so the, uh, so the idea to put the national spotlight on this was a great idea so that everybody can see what's happening. Uh, Black Lives Matter founders got that idea from Martin Luther King. It was Martin Luther King used that idea to put the, the spotlight, the national spotlight on what was going on with the, with the bus drivers and, uh, and the black people in the back of the bus with uh, Rosa Parks. And then once the whole country saw it happening, then things began to change. So that, so Black Lives Matter modeled that and put the spotlight on black men who were being shot or murdered by police officers. Okay, but here's the problem that I have with Black Lives Matter. Uh, unfortunately, the founders did not want to trademark the name and they did not want to centralize and make it into an organization. Um, it would have been much better if they had done that because right now you have 80 or 90 different factions of Black Lives Matter all over the country. Right. And they all are on different pages. You know, um, you, got, you got one group of Black Lives Matter, you know, they, they might be all black supremacists. You got another one where blacks and whites are working together. Uh, you got another one where they're very aggressive. They're going out there, they're putting graffiti all over everything and, and tearing stuff down. You got, you got another one who wants to sit down with the city you know, uh, council people and work out a bill to pro propose a bill and work through legislation to, to pass things, you know, constructive. So you got all these different ones going on and, right, and, right. and each one has its own little leader. And some leaders are very aggressive. Some leaders say, hey, let's sit down at the table and try to work things out. You know, some, no, I don't want any, any, any white people in my group. You know, I'm tired of white people. Or they'll say, yeah, come on in. I mean, you got some, some Black Lives Matter groups that, that are predominantly white, you know? So if you had something that was centralized, like say the Red Cross or the Boy Scouts of America, these are centralized organizations with one president where policy is created at headquarters and the policy is disseminated to every chapter around the country. So every chapter is on the same page. The New York City chapter of Boy Scouts of America has the same policy as the Los Angeles chapter does. You know, Black Lives Matter is not like that. So let's say uh, you said you're, where, Sausalitos? Where did you say you were? Oh, Cerritos. Cerritos, I'm sorry. Cerritos, yeah. okay, so, so if, if the Cerritos, uh, California chapter of Black Lives Matter is doing things constructive. You're meeting with the mayor and, and, the, and, the, and the county council and trying to get legislation passed to do this and do that and work things out. And meanwhile, the um, San Jose chapter is, uh, is doing something crazy. You right. know, they're tearing stuff up and whatever else. Right. When, the media, when, when the media reports it, the media does not say the San Jose chapter of Black Lives Matter or the Cerritos chapter, they just say Black Lives Black Matter. Lives Matter. Right. So whatever bad stuff they're doing reflects on you. You understand? Yeah. And that's because there is no centralization. Exactly. So, um, you know, it's a good idea, but the, but the good idea needs to be reined in. It needs to be, because it's like having too many chefs in the kitchen <laughs> trying to make the same recipe. Right. You know, um, there are six Black Lives Matter chapters that have contacted me. There's one in Laurel, Mississippi, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, New York City, and I've, I'm trying to think of this, two other ones. There were six of them. Anyway, uh, they have contacted me and said, hey, uh, do, do you do workshops? Can you teach us how to do what you do? Uh, and then there are other ones who just rip me apart. They want nothing to do with me. Uh, you know, I'm a race trader. I'm a, I'm a sellout. You know, um, I'm, I'm supporting the Klan. 
and all kinds of crazy stuff. Wow. You know, so that's why I say, you know, they need to be on the same page. Right. And yeah, like when they said you're part of the KKK, I'm like, <laughs> I think you're the opposite of that. But I don't know. And I think I could kind of understand the pain though, because you've had your voice unheard for like a long extended period of time. And you might even feel frustrated or hatred towards the people. That you are know, giving... I don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, not you, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I still think that there is still room for us to have a dialogue because sure. you you kind of need that too, as you said, understand. But I think, but, yeah. But you know, the funny thing about it, Dewan, is this. They, the ones who fought me, because not, not all Black Lives Matter chapters fought me. A lot of them support me. Right, but then right. of course, there are, there are a lot of them who do, who do not like me. Right. And, then, and then some have come back to me and said, hey, I, I I understand what you're doing now. You know, I'm sorry. But, you know, oh. you know, you know, maybe we can work together. Whatever. Some wow. some have done that too. Yeah, um, and others want nothing to do with me. Okay. So, but but here's the funny thing. Um, they fault me for for taking the time to to talk to these white supremacists, whether they're KKK or neo-Nazi or whatever else I talk to. Right. They say you know we you know we shouldn't be talking to them, but yet. These same people, they march up and down in front of the police department, talking to the police in their bullhorn. What's the difference? <laughs> you know, they're, you know they, they accuse the police of being racist white supremacists, and some of them are, for sure, no question about it. <laughs> so why are you talking to them? You don't want me talking to the KKK. What, what's the difference? I can't tell you. Isn't it the same? I mean, I feel so, like... Th so there's a lot of hypocrisy. Right. Yeah, I feel like maybe one's a little bit more tame with the conversation because I think yelling at someone with a bullhorn might not be like the best way for them to re receive the message because as you said, their wall is up. Exactly. And I guess that may be the difference, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't really <laughs> see that much of a difference. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and you know, we have to come together. We have to come together. And the way the only way to come together is sit at the table. You know, we don't have to agree, but we need to but we need to be heard and we need to be and we need to respect one another to air to air our viewpoints. Yeah. You know, when I when I was um I, I remember this and I was either five or six years old. Um we were overseas. Uh, you know, as I said, I was an American embassy kid. And we went, you know, and when you, when you go overseas, the ambassador of the embassy tries to keep a lot of the American traditions going, you know, for the families they know that are over there, because, you know, that particular country may not have the same traditions that we have. And so it was Easter time. And so the ambassador was having an Easter egg hunt at, at his house mm -hmm. for all the, uh, all the American kids, you know, little right. kids. Right. So my parents were taking me over there. And there's this long driveway going up to the ambassador's house. And I'm sitting in the back of my parents' car and we're going up the driveway and I see this kid up ahead. He's an older kid, maybe, I don't know, a few years older than me. Hmm. Maybe he, he might've been like maybe, I don't know, eight or nine. And uh, here I am five or six. And uh, he had this white thing on his arm and his arm was bent. And, um, you know, I'd never seen anything like this before. I didn't know what was going on. And um, it, you know, and, and his, his arm did not move when he moved. 
And so uh, I, I was afraid. You know, I thought, yeah, this guy was like an alien or something. You know, I'd never seen this before. Right. And, and I refused to get out of the car. My parents had to drag me, literally drag me, kicking and screaming and crying. Because, you know, I, I thought this guy was going to attack me. I, you know, I was afraid. You know, I, I didn't know this guy. He had this, this weird thing on his arm. And my parents kept trying to explain to me, you know, it's called a cast. He injured his arm, you know, and um, oh. I, I'd never seen a cast before. Right. So I was terrified because most people who I know, you know, everybody who I, not most, everybody that I knew had normal arms, you know, they do like this. Yeah. And this kid, you know, his arm was bent, you know, because he had this cast on his arm, right? And, and it, it didn't move, he just moved like this, you know? And, and, yeah, and I'm like, what the heck? Uh, so I, I, I didn't want to get out of the car. I, I you know, I, I could care less about the Easter eggs. I was afraid that, you know, this person was going to attack me. And my parents forced me out of the car. Yeah. And I stayed as far away from that kid as I could, right? And then some of my friends, you know, they got close to him or whatever. And next thing I know, you know, I'm, you know, I'm observing it from, you know, from a distance, right? right? You know, they're, they're like writing something on, on, on this <laughs> cast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what was going on. Right. So, I, you know, I get closer and closer and closer to, to see. And then the guy says to me, you know, do, do you want to sign your name? And finally, I signed my name on his cast. You know, Aww. but it took that coming together. You know, hey, you know, this guy's okay. You know, I, you know, I wrote on his cast. The cast didn't jump off and bite me or anything like that. <laughs> you know, so, right. you know, we, we fear what we don't know. Yeah. And at that age, I'd never seen a cast before. So I, I was terrified because this, this guy looked different. Mm. So how crazy is that? You know, he, did, he didn't look black. He didn't look white. He didn't, he didn't look Asian or Hispanic. He looked like, like, like an alien. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't I wasn't scared per se when I first saw my cast, but I could get what you mean because they're like it's unnatural almost. Yeah, and it's like it scares you. And just building on that, then what do you think is the best way to actually start opening up dialogue, especially when you or other people are scared of starting it? Okay, what you do is this: you be the leader. Right. You take the initiative. Right. All right. I call it walking across the cafeteria. Oh. And what do I mean by that? Yeah. Um, it could be school, high school, it could be college, it could be the workplace. You know, you, let's say you're in an environment where you have a lot of diversity. Say, you know, uh, wherever, you're working in a company. There are Asian people, there are uh, Hispanic people, black people, whatever there. Uh, you might even be working on the same project. Right. Even in the same cubicle, right? right? You're all working together. And that's fine. But then what happens at 12 noon? You go downstairs in your building to the cafeteria for lunch. And what happens there? Blacks go sit with Blacks. Asians go sit with Asians. Hispanics <laughs> go sit with Hispanics, right? Okay. Now that's called self-segregation. Right. And no, no one's forcing them to do that. They're doing that on their own. Right. Does that mean that they're racist? No, no. People, people tend to, to self-segregate and be with people who, who share the same language or the same religion or the same culture, whatever. It doesn't mean that they're racist. Now, if they were to say, let's, let's, say, let's say I'm Asian, okay? And I'm sitting with all my Asian friends at lunchtime and some white guy comes over, some black guy comes over and wants to sit at my table. Oh, no, 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 you can't sit here with us. We don't, we don't want you. That's racist. Yeah. Okay, that's racist. But to just come and group together 
with somebody different or somebody the same as you are is not racist. It's just self-segregation. People feel more comfortable. So what I say do is this. Once, twice a week, when you go to the cafeteria, walk across the cafeteria and sit with somebody who you do not normally sit with. Mm-hmm. You know, leave, leave your friends at their table. You can come back to them another time. Go across the cafeteria and sit with somebody else. Sit with a bunch of Hispanic people. Sit with a group of black people, group of white, white people, whatever. Sit with somebody different at least twice a week because you have a lot to teach them and you also have a lot to learn from them. And it's beneficial to both groups. Right. And, and, and you will make a hell of a lot more new friends. And, and I'm going to tell you, no, seriously, you will. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you something uh, that happened to me. And, and this is how I came up with that. Right. Um, one of the times when I came back from overseas, all right, I was in eighth grade. And uh, sorry, eighth, eighth and ninth grade. Anyway, uh, I had just come to school. And this was a phenomenon for me because, like I said, you, you move every two years when you're in the foreign service. Right. Uh, you know, you go to a country, you're there for two years, and you come back home, you're here for a little bit, then you go to another country for two years, come back. All right. So I was moving every two years. When I came back here in the eighth, eighth and ninth grade, um, when I went to school, everybody in my school knew each other from kindergarten. I never heard of that. You know, I, I didn't know anybody for more than two years. What do you mean you knew, <laughs> you knew everybody all your life? What's wrong with you? So, <laughs> so anyway, you know, that was a phenomenon for me. And um, I didn't know anybody here, you know? I, I'm just in town for a couple months here. So uh, the two most popular people in my school, uh, a girl named Debbie Cisco and a guy named Albie Kohler, they were the two most popular people in my school. And, and uh, they were running against each other for student body president, you know, for the whole student body. Right. So now I, I have never been a clique person. You know, we had all these little cliques in school. Right. You had the, the jocks, the nerds, the potheads, the whatever else, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what they called them, right? right? So anyway, you know, I never belonged to a clique. Right. I made friends with everybody. Yeah. I'm, you know, that's just what I did. And so both Debbie and Albie, each one of them asked me if I would, if I would come on their ticket as vice president, because see, they, they each were in different cliques. And so they figured, well, Daryl knows that knows all the cliques. So if we get him, you know, if I, if I get him on my ticket, you know, everybody in all the cliques will vote, will vote for me because he's on my ticket. He knows them all, whereby only the people in her clique are going to vote for her or Albie's are going to vote for him. Right. They were limited to their cliques. Right. Here I, I I'm like you know you know you know universal click or whatever right, so <laughs> uni click, so uni click I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so each one of them asked me to be their VP. Right. And I like them both. You know they both are my friends, and so if I were to sign on with one of them, I knew it would hurt the other one, and I really had to weigh it out and think about okay you know which one would be least hurt, um, you know? And I, I, I wanna do this, I'm honored that each one, you know, thought of me, um, but I don't wanna hurt either one of them. You know, they're both are good friends of mine. Mm. So what do I do? Do, do I, you know, do I just say, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna be either, either president and don't do anything, either vice president, and don't do anything. Cause I, I wanted to be a vice president. So I went home and I thought about it. And here's what I thought. I thought, you know, if they both think that much of me, 
right. it must mean that I that I'm pretty good. Maybe <laughs> I should run for president against both of them. Oh, yeah. Okay. How about that? How so about that's that? <laughs> so that's what I did, and guess what? I won. You won. I won, and I'd only been in town a couple months. I'd just gotten back from overseas, so I'd just been in town for a couple months. And these are people. Everybody voted for me. I won. And I, and I, I was, all, people had only known me for a few months, a couple of months, and they'd known each other since kindergarten. And that is the power of getting to know different people. Mm. Wow. Like you could even create social reform with that kind of power. Absolutely. Wow. That's, yeah. And like, I know there were a lot of criticisms because they're like, oh, this type of almost movement of wanting to have dialogue, it's going to be limited because it's one or two select people doing these things. But that just kind of shows how much one person could have an impact. I know that for the past, I think, 30 years, right? Or even more than that. Are you talking about the time that I've been doing this kind of work? Yes. Yeah, it'll be 37 years next year. Wow. 36 this year. Yeah. So for the past 36 years, I know it's been quite a tumultuous journey with a lot of unique experiences and all that but I wanted to ask you personally this is on a personal level uh-huh. how this journey has affected your life and how like what kind of impact does it have on your worldview etc um you know it, it has made me um realize how much more I can do to better my society I realized that I've had an advantage that a lot of people have not had. Again, I say, it does not make me a better person. It just makes me a broader person. And that, you know, music is, is, is my platform. I would much, much rather be on stage playing rock and roll and seeing people out in my audience dancing on the dance floor, having right. a good time, than be at some Klan rally watching them you know, light a cross on fire and parade around saying white power, white power. Right. And I, I've seen that too many times, but it's necessary for me to, 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 take, to do this work um, because I am affecting change here and there. You know, I can't change the whole world. And I'm hoping people will be inspired by the work that I do as one person. And I hope people can see what I do and improve upon what I do uh, because there's always room for improvement. You know, you know, it's like maybe I pioneered something so somebody else will come along and make it even better and make it more effective. Um, because I feel this, our, our country can only become one of two things. One, it can become that which we sit back and let it become, or two, it can become that which we stand up and make it become. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do I wanna sit back and see what my country becomes? Or do I want to stand up and make my country become what I want to see? So I've chosen, yeah, so I've chosen the second one. I want to stand up and make my country become what I want to see. And that's, and that's why I do this work. So, you know, uh, this is not something that I wanted to do. This is not something that I planned to do when I went to college. You know, I want to be, I I want to be a rock and roller, man. I want to be out there, you know, (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's a cool um, job. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, you know, you know, being being a rock and roller is probably a lot a lot more safe than than going to clan rallies. (laughs) (laughs) I never I never saw anybody you know get shot or beat up or you know on the stage you know playing rock and roll. But um, 
you know, but uh, I, I, I've seen some, I've seen some rough stuff. I've had to hurt people before, you know, when oh. people attack, oh yeah, I've put some people in the hospital or put really? them in jail and things like that. Fortunately, there haven't been that many times, right. you know, but it does, you know, it does happen and you should be expecting that because people hate, people do hate. People hate. And, uh, and they don't have to have a reason. You know, you look different, you sound different. You speak different, you know. Uh, whatever the you know, you worship different. Whatever their their issue is, you know, you're not it, and um, and so therefore they you know they they're out to hurt you or to eliminate you, and then there are others who you know will try to talk to you or whatever, but um, you know there is that element of that, and you have to be aware of that. So um, I, I run into I run into the whole gamut, you know, people who. Who, who won't give you a chance and they, they're right on you as soon as they see you. Right. And then people who, who don't like you for sure, but who are at least willing to sit down and talk to you. Right. And how, how, is there almost like a sense of helplessness when you see people who are, aren't willing to really change, to listen to you, to give you a chance? Yeah, sure. There is, um, you know, and you feel bad for them. Right. You don't give up on them. But, uh, but focus your energies, you know, don't give up on those because, you know, you never know something might trigger somewhere and they, and a light bulb come on and they lose their stupidity and, and go from stupidity to ignorance. So you can fix the ignorance. You just can't fix them when they're stupid. Um, so, uh, you know, you don't give up on them, but, but focus your energies on those who do hate you, who don't like you, but at least they're willing to sit down and talk to you. Because right. that way you can plant that seed and you can get that wall. But remember, always lower the wall and always don't lower. yeah always lower the wall and then when it's your time to talk don't jump across that wall and start attacking <laughs> you know just stay hang back defend because when you're defending they're listening to you and then when they and, and that seed is being planted all right because the wall is down and then when they get home that's when they have that struggle within themselves you know um so yeah you know <sighs> music is 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 the great uniter. I love music. You know, music brings people together. Everybody likes music. You like music. I like music. Yes, I yeah. do. <laughs> people in the KKK, they like music. You know, people in Black Lives Matter, they like music. Right. So, you know, maybe bring some music together. Bring, you know, have, have a dance, invite some KKK and some Black Lives Matter people together. You know, you know put on a jam or something. Um, you know, it can work. Trust me, it can work. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I, I enjoy bringing people together because how I look at it is like this. Um, I'm a band leader. I have my own band. Right. And my job as a band leader is to bring harmony on my stage between all the, all the uh, voices on my stage, right. whether they are instrumental voices or vocal voices, whether it's, like, whether it's the piano, the bass, the drums, the guitar, the saxophone, or the, sing or the singers. I want harmony. Right. The only time that, that I want dissonance is when I intentionally call for it in, in the piece of music, right? Because if, if a dissonance, you know, you, know, you know what dissonance is, right? Yeah. Yeah, so if a dissonance happens randomly, that's noise. That's not music. That's noise. You know, somebody hit a bad note or they sang out a key or mm. something happened, you know, um, that was not intentional. That's noise. But sometimes you want to inject dissonance into your music because you want to create a certain effect. You know, that's still music, even though it's dissonant. So my main job is to create harmony and only insert dissonance when I want it, control dissonance, right? 
So naturally, when I come off the stage, I want dissonance in my I mean, I want harmony in my society. So that's why I try to bring people together. Because I like it. I like harmony on my stage. So why wouldn't I want it when I come off stage? I, I don't want to come off stage and be fighting everybody. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what are those like metal thrash fans or whatever it was? <laughs> yeah, like yeah exactly. Like mosh pits and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the mosh pits. You know, I, I got my finger broken at a mosh pit one wow. time. You know, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't punk dancing, but uh, I, I'd gone to see this drummer of mine. I don't know why I went, but I went and... Um, <laughs> He was playing with some punk band and uh, some, one of these guys, you know, marching and slam dancing and stuff slammed right into me and broke my finger. Oh, <laughs> so, and I, I play piano, man. So, you know, right. that wasn't cool. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like I've personally been in a band before where it's like a Christian band and uh -huh. we played to like small local areas. Yeah. But like, I definitely get what you mean by harmony, et cetera. And I think that's a powerful message that kind of transfers over too, because you want harmony of music it's a great conversation starter but not only sure. that you could connect with different cultures because in the audience there's like people of different backgrounds so different but yeah they all enjoy the same thing and that's sure. how you can start the connections i really like that absolutely yeah so do you think that music is like a motivator for you to make those connections yeah absolutely absolutely no question about it <laughs> you know listen um okay so let's say Let's say I'm off next Saturday night, right? Yeah. I'm not playing anywhere. Yeah. So I, you know, I want, I want to go out and do some dancing. I want to dance. So I'm going to go down to the local club down the street. You know, maybe it's a DJ, maybe it's a band, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, there's still music there in the dance floor. Right. So I go down there and, and a good song comes on and I want to right. dance to it. And people are on the dance floor, they're dancing. So what do I do? I look around to see if I see a single lady by herself. You know, see, you know, I, I want to. I don't, don't want to dance by myself. So, I, <laughs> <you know. laughs> so I definitely get that feeling. <laughs> right. So I'm looking around to see if I see somebody unattached to yeah. some guy. Right. So I see this lady sitting at the bar, yeah. and she's like tapping on the bar, you know, in in beat to the music. So obviously she likes that song too. So there's my chance. You know, she's not attached to anybody. She's by herself. I walk over and say, Hey, you know, you want to dance? Yeah, sure. She pops off her bar stool and we go out on the dance floor together. Now, I don't know this woman, right? Oh I never seen her before in my life. Wow. Okay, but we both like that song. If it's a slow song, we're like this. <laughs> dancing like around the floor. Them like that? Yeah, dancing around the floor, right? If it's a fast song, then we're apart, you know, we're shaking or whatever. Yeah. I don't even know this person, right? So then after the song is over, I escort her back to her bar stool. And I said, hey, you know, my name's Daryl. She says, you know, my name's Kathy or whatever. And um, I said, so what do you do, Kathy? And she says, oh, I'm a vice president of um, Microsoft um, uh, uh, East Coast. Well, so she's making half a million dollars a year, right? <laughs> and, um, and she says, you know, what, you know, what do you do, Daryl? And I tell her I'm a cashier at McDonald's. <laughs> so, you know, I'm yeah. I'm making what nine thousand dollars a year. Right. So where do two people that far apart come this close? Yeah. Who don't even know each other? The music. We didn't even we didn't even know each other's names when we got on the <laughs> dance floor. So music is very powerful, man. Very powerful. Wow. Yeah. Like it 
just whether it's a social divide, a cultural divide, socioeconomic divide, just connects everything. Right. You know, and, and when you go to a bar or to a club or to a concert or to a festival, everybody is there. Mm. Um, the, the restaurateur is there. The computer programmer is there. The school teacher is there. The, the person who, who comes in the garbage truck every Saturday to pick up your trash cans, he's there. Right. You know, the person painting the yellow line down the middle of the street, he's there because he likes music. You know, uh, the artist is there. You know, everybody is there. The, the bank teller is there. You know, all these different diverse occupations, they're all there because they like music. Right. Now, if a, if a computer programmer or, or, or a computer company were to have a party, most people who are going to be there are computer people, right. uh, IT, software development, hardware, uh, computer sales, programmers. They're all going to be computer-related people. But if you had a music party, everybody's going to be there. The computer people, right. the bankers, everybody, restauranters, whatever. Do you think there's any better form of medium for connection other than music? Or do you think it's like the best? Um, well, music is certainly a conversation starter and, and it certainly attracts people because, you know, if, if, there, if, if there's a vibe, um, you know, you feel that vibe, you know, yeah. you start, you know, getting into it, right? You don't, you don't even know the person, but the person doing the same thing you are, you know? So yeah, it, it becomes like attractive. It's sort of like, you know, you ever, you ever seen somebody yawn and then you yawn? Right, right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know your music has that way of just bringing people in, in, into the same groove. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to end it with this question. Okay. And I want to ask you if there's one lesson that the audience could take away from this podcast, what would it be? The lesson that the audience can take away from this podcast would be one person, and that one person is you, can affect the lives of many. Okay, don't think that you don't count because you're only one person. Your vote counts, whatever you do counts. I'm just one person. I'm not an organization. Uh, I did not major in sociology or psychology. I majored in jazz music. All right, so if I can get out there and have a conversation with white supremacists and, the, and then they end up leaving that ideology and leaving that movement, and becoming friends of mine and giving me their robes and hoods and their neo-Nazi flags and all that stuff, um, you can do it too. Anybody can do it. Uh, don't think, you know, I'm just one person, what can I do? You can do a lot. You can do a lot. Have confidence in yourself. Amazing message. Thank you so much, Sarah. For Thank this. you, Dewan. Stay in touch, okay? 